Elizabeth Warren, sometimes referred to affectionately, of course, as Pocahontas. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in Oklahoma, I learned about my family the same way most people do. My brothers and I learned from our mom and our dad and our brothers and our sisters, and those were our family stories. I'm an Indian outlaw, half Cherokee and Choctaw. My baby, she's a Chippewa. She's a one of a kind. All my friends call me Bear Claw. The village chicken is my papa. He gets his orders from my mama. She makes him walk the line. Tim McGraw's not Indian? He didn't write the song for sure. I know that. Okay, if he's singing it and he's not fucking part outlaw, yeah, I have a huge problem. I mean, no outlaw. You mean I mean, Indian, Indian outlaw. I yeah. just had, I just always, I guess, assumed that he was Indian in the way that, like, everybody oh, I went to high school with was yeah. Indian, which is to say, you know, like, yeah, Andy's got I'm 164th Cherokee, Cherokee you know. Yeah. My, the, yeah, one well, of my favorite white people joke is what do you call 16 southern white people in the same room together? In Full blooded <laughs> Cherokee. Granddaddy was Irish Cherokee. Ran moonshine from here to Tennessee. Spent half his life in the Montgomery County Jail. I've got more Indian blood in me than Pocahontas, and I have not. This is our family's story. The legendary Pocahontas. I said Pocahontas. It's Pocahontas. 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 just like I was looking I was googling all this stuff and I'm just I realized like how much the public school system like fucked me I mean it just it felt like I was totally unprepared to even know where to start with any of this I was just like well what even is a Cherokee person like what is that what does that mean you know what I mean like I didn't I didn't know about like tribes being federally recognized or not federally recognized and like what the difference was in that and like and I don't know it just it felt really it felt really big to to think about and and talk about so but we get in school I mean even well, especially more so in my generation but all the way through yours and through oh, Williams yeah. now uh-huh. we don't get a lot no. about Native Americans. I mean, you get the conflict between the settlers coming in and the, the Native Americans being run over uh, yeah. and treated with very little respect and with, met with oppression and violence. Yeah. I um, mean, you, 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 you do barely get... scratch that surface, though. Mm-hmm. And you don't really get a lot about Native Americans. I know that at Thanksgiving, especially, you have this little chapter where yeah. everybody does the thing with the pilgrims and the Indians and everybody makes the, the paper feathers for the headdresses. and Out of construction paper. Right, right. And you have your little play sometimes and, yeah. and all of that. Ugh. So you get a little bit of that um, around here because we're so close to the Cherokee Reservation, the Kuala Boundary, it's called. Some of the classes are able to take field trips out there. Mm-hmm. And when I was in third grade, I had a great teacher. She took us on field trips everywhere. <laughs> we went to the bakery, to the fire department. We went all over the place. And we also went to the Kuala Boundary. We went to Cherokee. And the village of Cherokee has changed a lot over time. It's really morphed. Uh, when I was little, it was a lot like Chimney Rock. It was real mm-hmm. kitschy. Yeah. And there were all the souvenir shops with the rubber tomahawks and the moccasins and 
uh, the bows and arrows and the feathered headdresses again and, yeah. and all of that and take your picture with the Indian. All of that is very commercial, very surface, very misleading. It wasn't really about Native Americans. It was about what we thought Native Americans were. I don't know when the museum was built. There's a really, really good museum of the Cherokee yeah. that is much better at explaining who they are and what their culture is. And there's the O'Connell Lefty Village out there, which shows you Native Americans doing the things that they did. The things that they do. The things that they do, right. In the early days and now and showing their Native dress. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a lot more of an educational experience now yeah. than it had been. On that trip to Cherokee, in my third grade class, uh-huh. um, my parents were the chaperones. We had a we had a station wagon, so that made sense for them to be one of the chaperones. We could haul more kids. Yeah. Because we went in cars. We didn't have the big activity buses then. Mm. Back in the olden days when we had dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a car full of kids. It was me. and I can't remember. The only other kid that I remember that was with us was a little blonde-haired boy. He was really cute. I had a crush on him. <laughs> he informed us on the way to Cherokee in very excited tones that, he was part Cherokee. And the thing is, he was the whitest, blondest little boy you ever saw. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I've learned in my research that there are people who don't like look, quote unquote, look right as if they are Indian or Native American, like, but they are. Right. However, <laughs> I think that his family probably is, uh, experiencing what a lot of families are experiencing, which is that they think that they have Cherokee blood. Well, it shows you that that has been around for a long time. Before we officially start the episode, we just want to open with a few acknowledgments. We are going to be using the words Native American quite a bit today. I know that there are different schools of thought around what words should be used to refer to folks who were in the Americas before white settlers came and called this land the Americas. For today's episode, we're going with Native Americans as opposed to indigenous or first people of the Americas. We also want to make very clear that Native Americans are not a monolith. Native American is an incredibly broad term that's used to describe many diverse nations, tribes, and groups of people with their own distinct cultures. And speaking of specifics, I also learned this week that Buncombe County Register of Deeds has partnered with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in a project to chronicle the history of the Cherokee people right here where we live. We will include a link to that interactive website in the show notes. Because the Let's Talk Country podcast is recorded in Buncombe County, I'd like to read the acknowledgement on their website and echo its sentiments on our behalf. It says, quote, the Buncombe County Register of Deeds humbly acknowledges that the land we are on is the ancestral land of the Anigadawagi, more commonly known as the Cherokee. This land was acquired through violence, oppression, coercion, and broken treaties. End quote. Gather around. Gather around. Gather around. Let's talk country. Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Country podcast. The podcast where a couple of feminist killjoys are about to call your meemaw a liar. I am your host, Sarah. (laughs) I am your host, Sarah, and I am here with my co-host, Mary Lynn. Hello, I'm Sarah's mama. So here it is. We are serving up a heaping plate of hot, hot takes in this, our 
full to bursting Thanksgiving episode. And like almost all Thanksgiving dinners, it's bound to make everybody in attendance at least a little uncomfortable. It's tradition. (laughs) Mama, how is it already almost the end of November? I do not know. I looked up and it was April and then I looked up again and it was November. Yikes. Yep. Well, as you informed me just the other day, that means that it is National Native American Heritage Month. I did a little Googling and I found out that every year since 1995, presidents of the United States have declared November to be National Native American Heritage Month or some variation of that. And that's great. It is the literal least our government can do to give Native Americans a nationally recognized platform to share their stories and traditions, to celebrate the contributions their communities have made. So yeah, it's super cool that we have a whole month to do all of that. (laughs) Maybe let's keep it going all year, shall we? Now, Mom, you and I, we are, well, we're white. That is true. And I think the majority of what we've got to say today is to other white people. That is also true. The thing that I don't want to do is take a flying leap into a monologue about all of the violence that white folks and their descendants, including us, have committed against Native Americans. That would all be quite true, but we are not going to sit here and try to solve a problem that is incredibly old and, frankly, beyond our abilities. We are not going to talk about pain that we cannot possibly claim to understand. We need to let Native American folks have the loudest voices in conversations about the issues and struggles that their communities have faced and currently are facing. We want to encourage folks to listen to Native American voices in order to learn about the different cultures and tribes from folks who actually belong to those communities. So today, for our part, instead of the aforementioned flying leap, let's scooch, shall we? Let's scooch. Let's scooch into a conversation about how people who are not Native American, Indigenous, First People, etc. can follow in the footsteps of every president since 1995 and do the bare fucking minimum to respect our Native American neighbors. What, you may ask, is the bare minimum? Well, in my family, it was my daddy's grandma who swore up and down that her great, great, however many times great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess. Your daddy's grandma had a lot of interesting stories. She sure did. Well, in doing the research for this episode, I have learned how incredibly common these stories are. So it's not just my family, right? But it's a lot of families. And, and, and it's not just the claim of a Native American ancestor, but a Cherokee ancestor. And weirdly, it's very common also for people to claim being related to a Cherokee princess specifically. We're not going to expound on why Cherokee princesses aren't a real thing, but we do want to talk about why these stories are so common and why many of them are not true. And if the idea of having Native American blood is particularly dear to you, we are going to ask you to think really hard about why that is. And we're going to ask you to stop telling people that you are part, insert tribe here, okay? Now, I'm anticipating that some of our listeners might have a knee-jerk reaction to us telling them that their grannies and pop-pops are all liars, So before you switch over to The Office Ladies or some other similarly non-confrontational podcast, stick around and we will head into our first first segment to 
gently dig a little deeper. Okay, there it is. Our mission, our ask, examine your family lore and probably let it go. Here's the problem with claiming to have a Cherokee ancestor. And this is according to all that I've managed to read this week, which, you know, hopefully I've done enough reading. (laughs) Okay. It comes down to this. The number of people who claim to be Cherokee or part Cherokee is about double the number of people enrolled in one of the three federally recognized tribes. According to David Cornsilk, who is a Cherokee genealogy researcher, quote, Cherokees are among the best documented people in the world. We probably come in third after royalty and Mormons. That's kind of a high standard there. Right. So since before 1830, both the U.S. government and the Cherokee kept records of Cherokee births, deaths, marriages, etc. And I think we need to acknowledge that they were doing this for polar opposite reasons, right? The U.S. government was systematically trying to get rid of the Cherokee and the Cherokee were trying to stick around, understandably. David Cornsilk goes on to say, quote, there are 30 rolls made of Cherokee between 1817 and 1914. There are thousands of linear feet of records created by colonials, missionaries, U.S. officials, schools, travelers, and newspapers that trace our ancestries to the mid-1700s. Much of this paper trail was created by the tribe itself, end quote. So if you have the actual name of the relative that you think was Cherokee, you can pretty easily check. It's probably written down somewhere. The other thing is that there are more than 200 groups that claim to be Cherokee tribes, but are not federally recognized. And the three tribes that are federally recognized are taking steps to oppose many of these groups gaining that federal recognition because, from what I've read, a lot of the folks in those groups don't have any record of who their Cherokee relative was, meaning it's unlikely that they actually had one. Okay, so why do so many families have this lore, right? In, in spite of having no names, no documentation, why do so many white people, especially those of us from the southeastern United States, why do so many of us claim to have Cherokee ancestors? Let's do a little bit of history here. The Cherokee lived in what is now the southeastern United States until the U.S. government forced them out in 1838. And that, of course, is the brutal injustice that we now know as the Trail of Tears. Prior to this forced removal, the Cherokee did intermarry with settlers at kind of a higher rate than other Native American tribes. And according to Gregory Smithers of Slate.com, quote, We know that Cherokees viewed intermarriage as both a diplomatic tool and as a means of incorporating Europeans into the reciprocal bonds of kinship. 18th century British traders often sought out Cherokee wives. For the trader, the marriage opened up new markets with his Cherokee wife providing both companionship and entry access to items such as the deerskins coveted by Europeans. For Cherokees, intermarriage made it possible to secure a reliable flow of European goods, such as metal and iron tools, guns, and clothing, end quote. <clears throat> so that trend of intermarriage did taper off in the early 19th century, but it, it kind of lends plausibility to those family legends that so many of us have. But wait for the shitty part. Here it comes. In the 1840s and 50s, white people in the South began to claim that they had Cherokee ancestors because that was a way of communicating that their families had been in this region for a really long time, 
right? If you if you can establish a tie to the land by virtue of having been here for many generations and having intermarried with the Cherokee, you are then signaling that you are a true son or daughter of the South, which means that you have a stake and a say in the future of the South. What it boils down to is that these claims of having Cherokee blood had an ironic effect of reinforcing your identity as a white person, but even more specifically, reinforcing your identity as a white Southerner. That's messed up. (laughs) So fucked up. Thank you. (laughs) And that, so all of that is happening in the lead up to the fighting of, and of course the aftermath also of the, the American Civil War. And then once the South loses the Civil War. Spoiler alert. I know. The South lost, (laughs) y'all. A lot of people didn't get that memo. But yeah, so once the South loses the Civil War, white Southerners then start to romanticize the Cherokee even more. And they they start to draw these parallels between themselves and the Cherokee, right? This this idea of a group of people being ill-used, outgunned, and unjustly banished from their homeland by a tyrannical government started to hit home for them. Because... Being forced from your land at gunpoint, having your entire community violently uprooted, and losing a quarter of your population to illness and starvation on your way to being banished to the far reaches of places unknown, that's exactly the same thing as being told that you're not allowed to practice chattel slavery anymore. It's totally the same. (laughs) Ah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And yes, by the time they had lost the Civil War, the South was financially destitute, Many of their citizens had died, and much of what they had was destroyed. Yes, yes. But you'll remember, unlike the Cherokee, they actually had a choice in that matter beforehand. And at every turn, they still chose to fight for the right to continue to own people and breed them like livestock. So we're going to keep sympathy for the South where it belongs in the dictionary between shit and syphilis. My mama would approve. I thought so. Okay, so... Another thing that folks who think they have a Cherokee ancestor sometimes find is that that ancestor was actually black because of the way white people treated black folks under slavery. And then, of course, also under Jim Crow later, it was often at least marginally safer to pass as a Native American than to admit to being black. So there's that. And then in one more aside, I will say by the early 1800s, there were some Cherokee slave owners And many of the people that they enslaved did accompany the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears. So there are many Black families who also have lore involving a Cherokee ancestor too. And from what I can tell in both Black and white families, the belief in a Cherokee relative is more common than the proof of one. That's what we'll say about that. All of that is the likeliest source for our family lore. These unsubstantiated claims of a nameless Cherokee relative are often rooted in white supremacy. But Nana didn't lie to you on purpose. She was just telling you what Big Daddy told her and back and back and back, right? It starts out as that tall tale and then it just gets handed down. Right. It's got an element of the telephone game in there too. Every time you do it, it gets changed a little bit and it gets embellished a little bit. Yeah. Or, or lost a little bit, yeah. either way. But yeah, it's, it's not accurate. And don't worry. If you've got a Cherokee family legend, you have plenty of company. There's a whole list of famous people who have talked in public, out loud, where people can hear them about being part Cherokee. And they were wrong. Johnny Depp, he found out that his, his uh, Cherokee, supposed Cherokee ancestor was actually black. 
Bill Clinton has talked about it. Miley Cyrus thinks that she's part Cherokee. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, God, that was a whole thing, wasn't it? I knew about that. (laughs) (laughs) We all had to take that ride with her, didn't we? No, actually, she's a really good case study because, to me, her whole debacle feels instructive on how not to talk about your family legend of Cherokee ancestry. Uh, We're not going to give a blow-by-blow of the scandal because that would take a long time and be entirely beside the point. But let's do the quick and dirty version, which is... In 1986, she filled out some employment forms and listed her race as American Indian. When that surfaced during her 2012 campaign for United States Senate, she explained that she had a Cherokee ancestor, and the only proof of that was stories from her family. Now, in a mad dash to make her out to not be a liar, a ton of people like started trying to trace the lineage of her family and like try to link her to one of the three federally recognized tribes. And those leads did not pan out. Nothing that could meaningfully connect her to a specific Native American tribe was found. So in 2018, right before announcing her run in the Democratic presidential primary, the then president, Donald Trump, goaded Elizabeth Warren into taking a DNA test to prove her Native American ancestry, which against everybody's better judgment, she then did. Now, the results suggested that she might have had a Native American ancestor six to 10 generations back. And if you want to talk about DNA tests and their incredibly limited usefulness, we will link you to some articles and books in the show notes. We're not going to go into that right now. The point is the results were incredibly inconclusive and they did not change anybody's mind about her. All right. And the overall point that I'm making with the Elizabeth Warren aside is that every time she has had to answer for her claims to be a Native American, she goes back to the line, these are stories from my family. This is my family's history. And I think she's finally come to understand that that's not the same thing as being a member of a tribe. And she has made apologies for the harm that her claims have caused. But it's really the tone of that whole thing that bothers me, right? Her tone, her approach has been asking, how can I prove that my family legend is legitimate and and not disrespecting Native Americans? When, of course, the better question is, how might perpetuating this unsubstantiated legend that is incredibly common in white families be disrespecting Native Americans? She's basically prioritized being right over being an actual ally over and over again. And I'm gonna say this one more time, (laughs) instead of examining how pervasive family legends like hers are, and instead of acknowledging the part that white supremacy often plays in claims to have Cherokee relatives, she sought to prove her claims while campaigning for the highest office in the United States government, the organization at the center of disenfranchising the Cherokee people. Do not be like Elizabeth Warren, seriously. Before you spit into a tube, ask yourself, why checking for genetic markers found in higher frequencies among Native Americans is important to you. Because that's all your 23andMe is going to do. They cannot tell you definitively whether you have Native American blood, and there's no tribe-specific markers. You won't hear that on the commercials for all of these DNA test kits. If you are not recognized by a tribe as a member, you are not Cherokee or Creek or Seminole or whatever tribe your family legend professes. If you do not have proof of a specific ancestor who was recognized as a member of a Cherokee tribe, you need to stop claiming to be of Cherokee descent. Those of us who have not grown up in particular tribal tradition have no idea what it means to be a part of that particular culture, and we need to stop claiming that we do. 
All right. So we're going to slide now into our chorus segment and ask, what does all of this have to do with your favorite country music podcast? Oh, this is about country music, right? Remember that? (laughs) Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and respected non-binary audience members, please welcome to the stage, Mr. Johnny Cash. Yes. Johnny Cash is another one who at one time believed that he had Native American ancestry, and I believe it was Cherokee that he chose to believe about. And how I found this out, while I was looking on the internet for country songs about Native Americans, my aunt Laverne was helping me. She's Luli to us, so I'll call her Luli, and that's who I mean. (laughs) She found a snippet about Johnny Cash having recorded a whole album of songs about Native Americans. It's called Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian. People know this about Johnny Cash just because of how he presented himself and what he sang about and how he sang. Uh, Throughout his career, he had a soft spot in his heart for the downtrodden and the disadvantaged. His whole Man in Black persona is about standing up for those with little or no power of their own. His song, Man in Black, speaks of his sympathy for the poor and the beaten down, the ones who were held back. So you can already see that he's going to have a sympathy with the Native American. Mm -hmm. In the early 1960s, Johnny Cash heard the song The Ballad of Ira Hayes as performed by Peter LaForge, who wrote the song, and it opened his eyes to the plight of the American Indian. According to Antonino D'Ambrosio, author of A Heartland and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears, the Ballad of Ira Hayes was the jumping-off point for Johnny Cash's Native American activism and for the idea of Bitter Tears' album. Cash heard the song performed by LaForge in the 60s and was moved by the story of Ira Hayes, then immersed himself in learning about Native American issues. Cash said, By the time I actually recorded the album, I carried a heavy load of sadness and outrage. You can hear that when you listen to the songs on the album. Yeah, yeah. These Indian protest songs, as Cash called them, were sung from the Native Americans' perspective and were mainly about Native Americans' violent oppression by white settlers. The album contains songs on a variety of offenses against Native Americans, including the modern breaking of treaties that date back to George Washington's presidency, Custer's disastrous battle at Little Bighorn, Sequoia and the Cherokee alphabet, government schools meant to reform Native Americans, and the story of Ira Hayes, who was one of the six servicemen to raise the American flag at Iwo Jima. Everyone's familiar with that statue of the six men raising the the flag. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the subjects of the songs on the album. Cash sings all of the songs, especially the Ballad of Ira Hayes, with a righteous anger and disgust at the way Native Americans have been treated in each of these experiences. From the land of the Pima Indian, a proud and noble band who farmed the Phoenix Valley, in Arizona land. Down the ditches a thousand years, the waters grew Ira's people's crops, till the white man stole their water rights and the sparkling water stopped. Now Ira's folks were hungry and their land grew crops of weeds. When war came, Ira volunteered and forgot the white man's greed. Call him drunken Ira Hayes, he will answer anymore. Not the whiskey-drinking Indian or the Marine that went to war. There they battled up Iwo Jima Hill, 250 men, but only 27 lived to walk back down again. And when the fight was over and old glory raised, among the men who held it high was the Indian, Ira Hayes. 
D'Ambrosio relates that Cash felt a special kinship with Ira Hayes because both men had served in the military as a way to escape their lives of rural poverty, longing to create new opportunities. Plus, both suffered from addiction problems, Cash and his pills, and Hayes with alcohol. He decided to anchor the album with the ballad of Ira Hayes since the song had sparked his vision for the album. In the song, Ira Hayes comes home from World War II, a hero for his service in the Marines and at the Battle of Iwo Jima, but goes home to the Arizona Indian Reservation where there is no water for crops because of the government-built dam that diverts the water supply. There he lives the rest of his life unappreciated and lonely and eventually dies of alcoholism. He died drunk early one morning Alone in the land he fought to save Two inches of water in a lonely ditch was a grave for Ira Hayes. Johnny Cash's sympathy for Native Americans may have led to his self-identification as Native American. Prior to and during the recording of his album, Johnny Cash believed he had Native American ancestry. DeBrosio says, quote, During the depths of his early 60s drug abuse, he convinced himself and told others that he was Native American himself with both Cherokee and Mohawk blood, end quote. He later learned that he was mistaken about that and was, in fact, of European descent, English, Scots, and Irish. His believed Native American heritage had been the inspiration for the album and the songs that he recorded for it. As a side note, those songs, that album was not very popular, <laughs> especially with country music DJs and radio stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the radio stations wouldn't play the songs because they thought they were too political and unappealing. His record label, Columbia, didn't promote the songs or the album because they felt it didn't have commercial potential. Cash personally promoted the Bitter Tears album, and particularly the song, The Ballad of Ira Hayes, to DJs he knew achieving a number three ranking on the country singles chart for Ira Hayes and a number two ranking for the album charts for Bitter Tears. Okay. I appreciate you looking into that whole album for us, Mom, because I was not familiar with it. It wasn't something I had spent a lot of time with um, prior to researching this episode. A couple of things kind of struck me about him recording that album. And the first one is that he did it because of his belief that he had Native American ancestors. Right. And that's kind of a bummer, right? Because <laughs> it is it makes you think of those guys who are like, as a father of daughters, it's really important, I think, to be a feminist, you know? And you're just like, oh God, that's not how feminism works. You shouldn't have to be a father to care about women as people. You know what I mean? Like, no. And I think you shouldn't have to have a Cherokee ancestor to take an interest in the Cherokee people's traditions or their struggles or their pain. You should just care about that stuff because it's important to care about people. And frankly, because as Americans, we're living on stolen land. Well, that's all true. But I will be Johnny Cash's apologist here (laughs) and say that even after he discovered he had no Native American heritage, he continued his activism for them. For example, he performed benefit shows on reservations to raise money for schools and hospitals and other critical resources that had been denied by the government. Also, he was adopted by the Seneca Nation's Turtle Clan, so he was an honorary Native American Indian. All right. Well, look, that that is all wonderful and lovely and completely in keeping with what I think a lot of people think about Johnny Cash, right? That he's a all around, you know, pretty great person. And I do. I think that this album came from really good intentions, right? And I do too, yes. As were all as are all of us, he was far from perfect, right? But Johnny Cash consistently used his platform to talk about really important and often pretty unpopular issues. Definitely in this case. Yeah, we're we're not here to cancel Johnny Cash if 
that were even possible. Uh, we're not going to do that. I'm sure he's happy to know that. I'm sure he cares a lot about what we think. <laughs> well, we are here to say that like Elizabeth Warren, he is a good example of why we need to be taking our, our family legends with a fist-sized grain of salt, right? I mean, just really sit down with Nana and Papa and, and figure out what's going on with your family history. Do you have names to look up in the on the Cherokee uh, rolls? Do you have like actual names to point to? If you don't, and maybe even if you do, why is believing that you have a Native American foremother or father important to you? Ask yourself those two questions because historically, more often than not, these family myths are just that, right? They're stories that have been handed down to solidify our family's white Southern identity. And in these woke times, being only white can feel really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And our, our Native American family lore can provide an opportunity to appropriate a marginalized group's suffering in order to shield ourselves from accusations of things like white privilege. And that temptation is super understandable, I think. But giving into it shows a misunderstanding of the conversation around white supremacy and white privilege. Nobody is asking you to apologize for having been born white or European or anything else. What white people are being asked to do is to think about the advantages that being white or passing for white have afforded us in this world. We are being asked to recognize that just a few generations ago, people who look like us forced the Cherokee people off the land that we now live on enslaved black people, lynched people of color. They protested against integrating schools and the list goes on and on and on, right? White people are being called on to dismantle white supremacy. And the first step to doing that is as easy as listening when marginalized groups talk and following their lead when they tell you how you can help. Mm. And really, really, in asking you to examine these legends of a Cherokee ancestor, we're just looking out for you, listeners, because <laughs> it would be a real shame to have to get that Dreamcatcher tattoo lasered off. That shit hurts. And we don't want you to have to apologize years down the road for those photos of you and that headdress you wore on Halloween when you run for office someday, right? You don't need that scandal. Just it'll distract from the issues and it's disrespectful. So don't do that. Ask Elizabeth Warren. Oh, God, right? So sit down with Gigi and Giga and figure out what is in that family history. And regardless of what you find, listen to Native voices and learn how to be an ally to those communities. Now. Here at the Let's Talk Country podcast, we will make no claims to be exhaustive. Listening to us may be exhausting, but we cannot possibly cover all of the instances of country musicians singing culturally appropriative songs. But we are not leaving this place until we talk about Indian Outlaw. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so without further ado, listeners, I give you the one, the only, and by far the worsty worst offender, Mr. Tim McGraw. You can find me in my wigwam. I'll be beating on my tom tom. Pull out the pipe and smoke you some. And pass it around. Cause I'm an Indian outlaw. Half Cherokee and Choctaw. My baby, she's a Chippewa. She's a one of a kind. Indian outlaw came out in 1994 which was a long time ago. <laughs> Says the girl who was born not very long before that. <laughs> I, know. 
I'm old. <laughs> okay, so the song was controversial even in 1994. And from what I can tell, neither Tim nor either of the song's authors has a legitimate claim of belonging to any Native American nation or tribe. The song is <laughs> right. Surprise. <laughs> the song is in first person. And I think, is it the very first lines in it? The speaker claims to be part Cherokee and Choctaw. Uh, I believe you're right. Okay. Yeah. And then what follows that is pretty much a word salad set to a fast paced tune. I remember the medicine man. He caught running water in my hands, drug me around by my headband, said I wasn't a kind. Cause I'm an Indian outlaw, half Cherokee and Choctaw. My baby, she's a Chippewa concepts that are hodgepodge together from different cultures to create a laundry list of Native American stereotypes. And it's a pretty thorough one, too. So when yikes. I listen to this song, I picture a kid, mm-hmm. a little white kid, running around gathering all of his Indian stuff around him as if the more regalia that he has, even if the items are mismatched pieces from all these different tribes and traditions, the more he has, the more he can point to how authentically Native he is. When I can kill a deer or a buffalo just my arrow and my hickory bow from a hundred yards, don't you know? Wow, I do it all the time. They all gather around my teepee, late at night trying to catch a peek at me, and nothing but my buffalo briefs. I got them standing in line. Yeah, it, it really does feel like, you know, look at all the words that I know. <laughs> all right, to be fair, it does seem that many Native Americans embraced the song. The Eastern Band of Cherokees, uh, who are our neighbors to the West here in Asheville, they were noted as being particularly supportive in a few of the articles that I read. The Washington Post's Richard Lee quoted Susan Schoen Harjo, who is a Washington, D.C. Indian activist, and she says, quote, when people don't have anything positive to identify with, they will identify with anything, even if it's negative. End quote. And yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? If you're if you're looking around in pop culture and you're not seeing anybody that looks like you, and then all of a sudden here's old Tim with an upbeat song about being an Indian badass, like that might make you feel like you're finally being seen. But saying, as Tim McGraw did at that time, that 90% of the feedback we've gotten from Native Americans has been positive, doesn't change the fact that the song appropriates many Native American cultures. It becomes his first number one hit, and it helped to launch his incredibly lucrative career. And he's never apologized for that song or reflected on why a white guy profiting on a caricature of Native Americans is super fucked up. In fact, if I may... I'll just, I'll just read the final paragraph in Richard Lee's 1994 Washington Post article because it's just so peak. Tone deaf? Oh, God. It's, it's peak white tone deafness. Yeah. Okay. Richard Lee says, quote, McGraw, who grew up with imagery of crafty chiefs and Bugs Money cartoons and Peter Pan's whooping braves, says everyone knows that real Indians aren't like that. He certainly does. And he wants this printed, quote, A lot of my friends are Native Americans. Yikes. Never a good defense, guys. It's not good. Don't be like Tim McGraw. All right, let's take it on to the bridge, shall we? About that time. Hey, Mom, remember when you were like, let's do a Thanksgiving episode? Yeah, I said we could talk about food songs. And I was like, no, first we have to shine a light on the epidemic of white Southerners appropriating Cherokee culture. 
Well, we kind of did my thing. So do you want to do your thing now? Yeah, let's do my thing. <laughs> okay. Well, listeners, if you thought that her thing was going to be less political or thought-provoking than my thing, you must be new around here. Welcome. All right. So you have put together a list for us of songs that talk about food. Right. Right. And a lot of them are special to us in one way or another. But isn't it funny how songs about food are never really just about food? I've noticed that about the arts. If you have a play and there's a food scene, if you have a movie and there's a food scene, if you're reading a book and there's a food scene, it's not about food. Absolutely not. Almost almost never. <laughs> Remember on Pi Day when we compared Bob Dylan to Mom- Mambo Number no. 5? How could I forget? Let's see what other songs we can ruin today. <laughs> no, really. Let's, let's look at uh, three of the songs on this list that you've compiled for us and say one sentence. <laughs> One paragraph about each song, shall we? <laughs> we said a lot of things. So the first song we're going to talk about is Pantry by Lyle Lovett, which I was unfamiliar with, but it's Lyle Lovett and it's bouncy and it's fun. So what's not to love? Why don't you summarize it? It's not about food. Oh my God. <laughs> my dear, I have something to ask you and I'll try to get it right. in this song is very concerned that while he is away his partner will cheat on him he's worried she will cheat on him with cornbread beans collard greens and or biscuits mm-hmm. i guess he means by eating these foods with someone else and he wants her to be true to him by keeping it the food in the pantry <laughs> or by keeping her booty in her panties he is emphatic telling her to keep it in your pantry repeating that line eight times in each of the song's three choruses my god is it eight I didn't count. Yes. Thank you for counting. That's my job. He says a lot of them. (laughs) He says in the later verses that he will return with a healthy appetite. And if she isn't as hungry when he gets back, he'll know she betrayed him. In the third verse, he says he's dined all over the world. And he lists some of the worldly exotic foods he's had. But nothing's quite as tasty as what's cooking right at home. Mm-hmm. There's a line in the first verse about the light crest doughboys, and that could lead you to believe he's referring to soldiers who've gone off to fight in World War One, and that he's warning his girl not to screw around while he's off at war. You know, like the Andrews sisters singing, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, which, by the way, is not about sitting under the apple tree. Oh my God, really? <laughs> that was that was my first thought about this song with the Doughboys, I thought, because that used to be a nickname for, for infantrymen. And okay, I just want to say about the Andrew Sisters song, at least in that song, the the gals, the, the partners reading at home, they had a verse in that song. And they, they said about, don't sit anyone on your knee. 
you better be true to me. Right? They had like a little verse. It was super they cute. Back a bit. They sassed back totally. They said, you're getting the third degree when you come marching home. It's super cute. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I did not mean to distract. So so Doughboys, not infantrymen? No. Okay. What I found out when I looked it up on Wikipedia, that the Light Crest Doughboys were the original Western swing band <gasps> founded in 1931 that launched the career of Bob Wills other Western swing bands and band leaders. The Light Crest Boys band was formed by Burris Mill, an elevator company. That's a grain elevator, not an elevator elevator. Okay. Because the president of the company, W. Lee Pappy O'Daniel, wanted to link radio to advertising the company's Light Crest flower. Uh-huh. I think that's a precursor to Martha White. I wondered. I think. Because does he mention Martha White in the song as well? Yes, he does. But they, the Light Crest Doughboys didn't sing about her at all. They did not. Okay. Not at first, anyway. But if all this sounds vaguely familiar, it's because Pappy O'Daniel was the inspiration for the character of the same name in the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the Soggy Bottom Boys in the movie were loosely based on the Light Crest Doughboys. So that was a fun little side trip for me. That is very fun. And while the singer of Pantry expects his partner to be faithful and serve dinner to him alone, he does not appear to be under the same restriction. He has dined the whole world over on such erotic-sounding specialties as Verona melons and sausage from Gdansk. He seems to me to be an adventurous eater. I know. That is very interesting. Uh, I did not think about that when I heard the song. <laughs> I watched a video of Lyle Levitt and his band performing the song, and he kind of lingers over sausage and gives it a little bit extra meaning. Interesting. Okay. All right, Lyle. <laughs> Well, whether the song is about a military tour or a musician on tour, this speaker of the song is serving up some serious double standards for his partner back home. Yes. And we don't like that one bit, do we? (laughs) Well, thank you for doing all of that research. But I do think we need to point out Uh that just because the speaker of the song, the singer, is singing that, that doesn't mean that it pertains to him personally. No, that's true. That's true. And, and it's, it does not mean that it's an endorsement of that no. attitude of the double standard, right? Like, uh, like Lyle Lovett also sang L.A. County. That's in the first that's person. That's one of my favorites, yeah. Oh, that's so good. But I know that Lyle Lovett would never advocate shooting women on their wedding day. Ever. Probably not. I mean, okay. <laughs> Song number two is called Baby Makes Me Gravy by Dale Watson. Well, I know my day is going to get better When I smell that bacon pine in that pan A fresh good cup of coffee, two eggs over easy She knows how to make a happy man Lord, Lord, my baby makes me gravy A little grease and a little flour Keep a woman a lot of power She always seems to know just what I'm paying and she keeps it buttered up with a whole lot of love. My baby makes me gravy. That's right. 
Now, in this song, the speaker is bragging about his baby's cooking skills. He describes an ideal partner who waits for him to come home from work, wears nothing but an apron, and presents him with a pile of fresh biscuits each afternoon. Dare to dream. I, I really I love the line he says. He goes, a little grease and a little flour gives that woman a lot of power. And every time he says that, I'm like, is this woman trying to escape Stepford wifehood by only feeding him foods that will send him to an early grave? Heart attack on a plate. I know. Three times a day. So much. <laughs> I come home from work in a hard, hard day. She's standing there in nothing but an apron. Oh, filled peas and rice and some chicken, chicken fries. Cooking smile tells me what's for later. Oh yeah, my baby makes me gravy. A little grease, a little fire gives that woman a lot of power. She always seems to know just what I'm craving, and she keeps it buttered up with a whole lot of love. My baby. It's really easy to read in a window into this song. There's a lot of gravy and buttering up mm. and making a happy man and knowing what he's craving. And it's just, you could go a lot of places with that. You can. Mm-hmm. You sure can. And and I think there is a discussion in this one, too, about, like, gender role expectations and possibly, like, power dynamics between men and women. So there's a lot going on here. But I think there is a reading of the song, too, that's, that is just sweet from a feminist perspective. There's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home partner. It's a good gig if you can get it and if you're so inclined. So, yeah, we're not throwing any shade to folks who delight in homemaking and caring for others. But maybe throw in a vegetable once in a while. You know, some fried okra. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Steam that broccoli, maybe. (laughs) All right. So the third song we've got for you today is called Country Girl by the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And we have mentioned this one before, uh, kind of in passing in our Redneck Woman episode. It's, it's a lovely, upbeat song about being a rural Southern girl. I was raised in the country, that's a natural fact. Food on the table from the garden out back. Everyone working to make the land their own. Red clay cracking where the silver queen grows. Running with your cousins from yard to yard. The living was easy, but the playing was hard. Didn't have much, nothing comes for free. I've been around the world, and every place I've been, ain't quite nothing like living in the South. During the course of the song, the speaker does list a number of foods, the likes of which can only come from this region. Biscuits in the morning and gravy too, fried chicken in the afternoon, John Jagan eating sweet potato pie, taking half an hour to say goodbye, blackberry patches scuffing on by, sweet Georgia peaches and dandelion Like those other songs, it's not really about the food, right? Yeah, so the food in this song to me is one of the many elements in it that shape the speaker's personal and regional identity. And because Rhiannon Giddens is a writer on the song and she sings the lead vocals on this track, I think her multi-ethnic ancestry adds another dimension to it. Her father is European-American and her mother is African and Native American. There's a lot of flavors going there. Totally. So, yeah, the the Carolina Chocolate Drops have 
a song called Cornbread and Butterbeans also, which I think we should mention. And I would argue that that one is really similar to Country Girl in that the foods talked about are mainly illustrative of simple pleasures and rural identity there. And since we're talking about uh, Country Girl as being a little bit autobiographical, I did search for authorial intent. Lisa will be so impressed. I know. (laughs) Mom, if you don't mind, uh, let's do another dramatic reading uh, like we did the other day. I found an interview that Anti-Gravity's Aaron Hall did with Rhiannon Giddens. I'll be Aaron and you be Rhiannon. Okay. Okay. So Aaron says... In your song, Country Girl, you write and sing about life in the South and declare it as unanimously preferable to everywhere on earth. I imagine by this point that you truly have experienced many places around the world and you must have had such wonderful moments. What to you is the core reason you will always come home to roost in the American South? Part of it boils down to, it's what I know. It's what I grew up around. Yes, we have a lot of history, but so does everybody. Everybody's got skeletons in their closet. Everybody's got those horrible places of the past that they'd rather forget about. But you kind of have to make a stand. If everyone just says, well, horrible things happened here, I'm leaving, then that's no good. Part of me just wants to be there, to be the change I want to see in the world. And I want to do that at home. There are so many great things about the South. The warmth of the people and the food, all of those things. I just identify with them so strongly that I don't want to let them go. And I don't want anyone else to co-opt them and speak for me. But I feel like I can speak better if I'm actually there. I love that. I, I think that that really comes through when she says that line, I want to shut your mouth. It just, that's what that feels like to me. Is like, I, I want to speak for myself. I don't want you to speak for me. Right. Yeah. In addition to the Southern shut your mouth. Right. Right. Also that. <laughs> All day I dream about a place in the sun. Kinda like where I'm from, with the tall grass blowing in the breeze, running barefoot round the tall oak tree. All day I dream about a place I've been, a place where the skin I'm in feels like it's supposed to be. And anyone around who looks at me says I am a country girl. I've been around the world. Thank you to the Carolina Chocolate Drops and Dale and Lyle for giving us food songs for a thought. Is this thing on? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we excuse ourselves from this feast of hot takes, we are going to give you a Thanksgiving treat. We're going to do a tropes course. Yay. It's been a long time. Yay. (laughs) Well, Mom, what is today's Tropes Course selection? Today, let's have a little bit of chicken fried by the Zach Brown Band. Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, look, if y'all are new around here, Tropes Course is where we examine the chosen song and we check it for common tropes in country music. So we're going to listen to the full song right here in the studio. Our producer is going to play a clip of the song here in the episode. And if you want to get the full version of the song, just check out our show notes or our companion playlist on Spotify. Listen to the song, see how many boxes it checks for you, and meet us back here in about three minutes. You know, well, I'm a chicken fried, a cold beer on a Friday night, a pair of jeans that fit just right. 
Welcome back. Um, this song has always felt to me like it was basically just a list of, mostly a list of foods, and then bam, a non sequitur about America and how great this country is. It's just really pandering and insulting and boring. It feels like it's trying to explore the same themes as we talked about in Country Girl, right? But but on the way to talking about personal and regional identity, it just kind of trips over its heart on for America and the troops, and then it just becomes awful, right? <laughs> Thanks for dying for freedom and fried chicken. I thank God for my life, and for the stars and stripes, may freedom forever fly, let it ring. Salute the ones who died, the ones that give their lives, so we don't have to sacrifice all the things we love, like our chicken fries. And cold beer on a Friday night, a pair of jeans that fit just right, and a radio what would we do without fried chicken? Yikes. Right? Yeah. What? What? Okay. So, yes, it is low-hanging fruit for all of the criticisms that we and many others have made about this song. But I think the reason for that is that it's checking a lot of our trope boxes here. <laughs> like, a lot. Uh, what is your count, Mom? Eight? Nine? Somewhere in there? Yeah, I, I have ten. But okay. uh, let's, oh, let's see what we got here. I missed my, I'll to one side of the page. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get to 10 now. Okay. <laughs> I could count. <laughs> Big numbers. Um, okay, so I will go through our list of tropes and, and you uh, say whether or not it is present here. Okay. Mama or family? Mama's there, family's there, big way. For sure. Outlaw, single life, the road, moving on. Don't get that. Love. He is in love with his wife. He is. Love in his woman's eyes. Trucks or tractors? Not noticeably. Uh, barns, hayfields, farms? No. Could be anywhere. Bars, honky-tonks, neon lights? Not per se, no. Scantily clad ladies or sexy times? He's keeping it family friendly. Food? Lots of food. So much food. Sweet tea or lemonade? There is definitely some sweet tea. Yes. Okay. As well as beer. And beer. That's another one. Is there product placement of any kind? I did not recognize any, and that was a major restraint on his part. It was, I think. Uh, how about blue jeans? Oh, yeah. A pair of jeans that fit just right. As a part of the chorus, we get to hear about them blue jeans a lot. Working class? Working? Hardly working? Working hard? I think you pick up that he's a working man. Isn't there a line in there somewhere about, like, about how it doesn't have to cost a lot or something like that? That's what I was picking up on when it was, like... A, Sort of the the morality around being a working class person is better than like being a rich person. I think you may be reading into it, but I'll go with you. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit. Okay. Weekdays or weekends, Monday morning, Friday night. He definitely wants to have a beer on a Friday night. That's what it was. This I, is where we differ. The, no, you you're mark right. Saturday and it's Friday. I did mark Saturday, but you're right. It's Friday. So yes, Friday night is mentioned. Saturday is not mentioned. Jesus or religion? I think that is there. Yes. Is it? I thank God for my life. Yes. Yes, that is there. Correct. And fried chicken. And fried chicken. So that, that puts us up to 11, I think. Actually, this is a Thanksgiving song. He's really thankful for a lot of things. He's very thankful. Oh. 
All right. Uh, what else is present? America, what it means to be American. We do come into that. Yes, we do. Non sequitur. Country, or what it means to be country. The radio turned up. So the rest of our, our common tropes are nostalgia for simpler times or the good old days versus now. And we one day will have a song that mentions prisons and one day we'll have one that mentions trains but none of those are present in this song today well thank you for looking at that with me um again i think our count does come up to 11 okay by the end of that now i meant also to count the number of foods that he mentions but i didn't do that sweet tea pecan pie and homemade wine where the peaches grow okay i think and then probably some other ones too (laughs) (laughs) those are definitely present (laughs) definitely well that I have to fried admit, fried chicken. You forgot fried chicken. Chicken fried. <laughs> and a little bit of chicken fried. Shit. <laughs> I will admit that this song was part of the inspiration for creating the tropes course segment. <laughs> it does check a lot of boxes for you, especially. <laughs> um, and it's it is just this shining example of so much of what is wrong with modern country music right now. It's just. A real stinker. <laughs> okay, let's uh, ease on out of here tonight. Let's let's go ahead and and go into the outro because I think it's about time for us to cover up and them leftovers and head on home. Don't you think? Yeah, we got to pull ourselves away. We do. But in the tradition of a true Southern goodbye, we're going to stand here and chat in the driveway for a minute and tell you a few more things. Got a few more stories. Just a few more little things to say. Now, I read something else this week that I want to share with everybody. It's an article on vice.com, and it is called 100 Ways to Support, Not Appropriate From, Native People. It was a really good read, and I do highly recommend it. Some of the asks in this article are around language. And I think that's a really simple thing. It's a really smart, simple place to start. So I am definitely guilty of a few of these. So I just thought I would share some of Simon Moya Smith's advice to close us out here. Simon says, don't even think about calling anyone slash anything your spirit animal. I'm guilty of that. Change the narrative on Indian givers. We aren't the ones who reneged on agreements. Let's take peace pipe out of your vocabulary. Not a problem for me. Right. Going camping with your pals whilst pounding booze in Patagonia jackets isn't a vision quest. Please just go camping. Stop using the words tribes, tribe, and tribalism as hip words for interest groups or groups of shared interest. This usage undermines the political, legal, and social unique status of tribes. You're not part Indian. You either are or you are not. We have discussed that at length today. Say it again for the people in the back. (laughs) You're not part Indian. Stop saying Native Americans believed. We believe. We survived. Being a better ally is about getting to know who we are and who we are not. We are not mascots. We are not mere relics of the past. We are writers, doctors, business owners, your classmate, neighbor. We are still here. So it's a great list. We will link it in the show notes for you as well so that you can read the whole thing. And definitely join us next time when we're going to tackle the other most common white people genealogical claim. For I have the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing to you a knight sired by knights, a knight who can trace his lineage back Beyond Charlemagne. Tracing your lineage all the way back to Charlemagne. <laughs>
I'm just kidding. We're, we're not going to talk about that. Unless maybe there's a country song about it. Let us know, y'all. <laughs> I don't recall one myself. I don't either, but there's a lot of country out there. We, we won't count it out. We want to thank our producer, Kareen, for being our ears in the recording studio and for all of his help in the editing room. And we want to thank all of you for making it all the way through the episode. <laughs> if you want to be in touch with us, letstalkcountry.com is still under construction. But visit our Instagram at Let's Talk Country Podcast or our Twitter at Let Country Pod or email us at letstalkcountrypodcast at gmail.com. If you're able to financially support the show, visit patreon.com slash letstalkcountry. Okay, mama, you better hit us with that exit line or we're going to be here all night. All right, then. Keep it in your pantry, y'all. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Bye, y'all.